0: I've known today's guest for close to 20 years. We originally met when she was giving riding lessons at the barn where I had my horse and where my daughters were just starting to learn to ride. She taught both of my girls, and I took lessons with her in which we tried to figure out how to work with my new horse, Annalisa, who was very sensitive, opinionated, and frequently uncooperative. I've watched her move from teaching regular writing lessons to building an amazing program that brings together horses that people had decided were no longer useful or who had, quote, issues, and people, including at-risk women and youth and kids on the autism spectrum. Although I don't get to see her in person anymore, I still keep up on the incredible work that she and her team at the Square Peg Foundation are doing. And when I decided to interview women who bring together people and horses in a therapeutic way, I knew that I wanted to start with her. She is one of my favorite people on the planet. And I won't be surprised if by the end of the interview, she's one of yours too. Here we go.
1: Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head-on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jolicoeur-Rude.
0: Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur-Rude. Today's guest, Joelle Dunn, is the founder of the Square Peg Foundation. She has been an equestrian since childhood and has participated in many different disciplines, including racing, polo, hunting, jumping, three-day eventing, and reining. She has worked professionally in many facets of the equestrian industry, including racing, marketing, special events, and breaking and training of young horses, in addition to teaching. She has taught hundreds of students to ride. She is a registered behavioral technician, and she has always been passionate about changing the way people teach. She's an advocate for alternative education and has been published nationally in equestrian publications regarding a gentler and more creative approach to teaching students and training horses. Since she started working with developmentally challenged children, Joelle has been developing a unique teaching method which resonates. Her philosophy of inspire, guide, challenge, and her sensitive style of instruction have helped hundreds of students to achieve important goals. It is my incredible delight to introduce to the world, Joelle Dunlap. Welcome to the show, Joelle. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm so excited because I have known you for so long and gotten to see you in action and see the impact that you've had on so many people and- When I first thought about this show and doing a show that was about women who were doing amazing work in the world and really changing the conversation in particular parts of our society, you were the first person that I thought of. Wow. Well, thank you. What an honor. Well, I'm sure that people will understand why as we go further into the conversation, especially as we talk about how you have taken the work that you have done with horses and used it really as a way to reach people who oftentimes get left behind or pushed aside. And I think that that work and the work that you've done with women who have experienced all kinds of trauma and abuse in their lives is really inspiring. So I can't wait to, to share exactly what you've been up to. Thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Well, before we dive into the nitty-gritty stuff, I always like to ask a couple of fun questions. Okay. <laughs> so, my first question for you is: What is your favorite part about living on the coast of California?
1: Uh, it's just beautiful, you know. My husband and I just had some family business up in in Nevada, and we just took the opportunity to kind of meander our way back down, down around Tahoe, and and just you know, all through these beautiful parts of California. And we were driving home. We were about two miles away and just realizing that, you know, our commute home is as beautiful as anything we'd seen in the last few days. You know, to be in a space of beauty is is just so inspiring all the time. And I try and be as grateful for it as I can. So the weather is great. The scenery is great. The wildflowers are great. The trees are great. I,
0: I could go on. Well, I can so relate to that because as you know, I spent 30 years living in Silicon Valley in concrete suburbia. And now I too live in a beautiful place that's full of nature. You know, I'm just surrounded by all of the wonderful joys of nature. And it does make such a big difference. We're so lucky, right? Absolutely. I Every morning I wake up just almost finding it hard to believe that that is where I am waking up. Yeah, it's an incredible, it's an incredible gift to, to be able to be up there. And that's one reason why I want to share it with people by having a retreat center eventually. Absolutely. So can you speak a little bit about how you got into polo? <laughs> polo?
1: How did I get into polo? I was working for a dot bomb, like everybody else, (laughs) at the time. In um, I guess it was like 1999 or 2000, and the owners of the company were polo players. And as a perk for the employees, they took us down to do a intro to polo clinic with a guy named Reggie Ludwig, which I didn't realize at the time. Is a really famous polo coach. And it took me like five minutes to actually make contact with the ball the first time from horseback. It was just ridiculous. I had no talent for it. And I was so completely hooked from the start. And then when the dot bomb bombed, Reggie actually hired me to buy some horses off the track for him. And we became friends. And I met
0: people in polo. And it's just a, It's a brilliant, brilliant sport. So what makes it so compelling for you? Because honestly, I have watched it and I always used to think that it was sort of the sport of the elites. And yet what I've seen you do with it has really been completely different. So can you, can you speak a little bit about that? Sure.
1: You know, it is, uh, it can be a very elitist sport simply because to play at a certain level, you need a whole herd of horses and you know, everybody in polo will tell you that the horse is 70 to 80% of your game. But I think that's true in, 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 in most equestrian sports. And so a lot of people just try and buy better horses and whether or not they can ride them is always the tricky bit. So outdoor polo is played on a field. That's nine times a football field size. And so you need a fresh horse for each period. When you play indoor polo that is in an arena and it's a quicker game, you can, you can still play a full game with two or three good horses. And so it's kind of the, the poor man's polo, as we say. And, uh, and it's just a, it's really fun. So I think a few unique things about polo. It's a war game, you know, as we know, like a lot of field games. But it's a game of teamwork, and you have to be a team with your horse, and you have to be a team with the other people on your team, which just creates a new dynamic at, you know, every single second of the game, which is really challenging. I wish that I could say I didn't, and so, you know, the speed of polo is a lot of fun, but the 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 coordination... And, you know, I'll never hit the ball as far as someone who's bigger and stronger than me can, but real polo is actually in your defensive game. And so, and I like defense. Is that terrible to say? But I I like playing a defensive game and that puts me in an advantage because most people's egos get in the way and they automatically go to the offensive portion. And if you really think, so it's a thinking person's game. If you think along defense lines, you can be a
0: really effective player. And I like that. That's that's really cool. And I mean, I wasn't gonna go here yet, but I can't not go here. (laughs) So you have used polo as one of the activities for your students. I wouldn't say it is one of the therapeutic activities, but it definitely has been therapeutic and it's been one of the ways in which they have learned so many different skills. Can you talk about why you started bringing your students into the polo world, and what the benefits have been for them, like what they've learned, and like what you really wanted them to get out of it by being involved. Sure, you know the the I never tell short stories, so
1: <laughs> and I'm trying to. When we started Square Peg, our mission, we really boiled it down to the essence, is to turn I wish into I can. Anyone who is a fanatic about horses knows that one of the really beautiful things about horsemanship is is feeling bigger, taller, stronger, faster than you are in your everyday body. When you add a 50-inch hammer <laughs> to that equation, things get exciting really quick. The vast majority of our students are on the autism spectrum. And autism is diagnosed in boys five or six times more often than it is in girls. And when you have a boy who feels marginalized, and you give him the advantage of being on a horse and, and hitting a ball, because boys love to hit balls with sticks. That's what they do. It's really, really, really empowering. And then to take that excitement and that empowerment and then be able to instill the discipline that it takes to keep the horse safe and to move the ball, the discipline and the focus, you're really on the path to what we're trying to do at Square Peg, which is give people a context for feeling able and challenging what they think they can do. We had one boy years ago. We used to do a lot of programs for a family homeless shelter in the Tenderloin, and this inner city kid who'd lived, you know, a pretty, pretty tragic life. You know, we we'd done a polo session the week before, and he showed up the next week, and he was really defensive again and really shut down. And and I said, well, you know, what's going on? Didn't didn't we play polo last week? And he says, well, yeah. And I said, well, don't you? you know, wasn't that exciting? And he said, yeah, but when I told people, nobody believed me. (laughs) And uh, so we made a video and um, we made sure that he could show people so that they believed him. And that was really cool. So to say it's empowering sounds really trite, but, but it's really true to, to feel bigger, stronger, faster, and more able on a horse is one of the gifts that the horse gives us, and when you can add you know a sport to that and a game that we can play together, uh, because again, polo is a team sport, and you really have to support each other, then that's really furthering the goals that we're trying to achieve here.
0: Yes, oh, I'm glad that we went there, even though this was supposed to be like the quick and easy fun questions because that is one of my strongest memories of of seeing you in action was, was seeing you with your kids out there playing polo and just being amazed that you had the courage to even think, try that with kids. Because I mean, honestly, trying to manage one kid on a horse is hard. <laughs> <laughs> but in that context, I was like, holy smokes, that's amazing. So
1: You know, the other thing that has been so cool when we did start taking kids to uh, the horse park over in in Palo Alto is that as horse people go, the polo community are really friendly, fun-loving people. And the Stanford Polo Club has been really supportive of our program. We've traded horses back and forth over the years. And the Horse Park Polo Club uh, was so welcoming to our kids and so helpful. And the Polo Training Foundation was also very generous. And they would come out and they would send referees out to, uh, to help train our kids. And the local polo coaches, people were just super, super, super sweet. And, you know, sometimes in the horse business, it can be very competitive and very elitist. And we found the polo people to be generous, Fun-loving,
0: sweet. It was nice.
1: Yeah. Really nice. Yeah.
0: That's that's wonderful. Well, I'd like to rewind and kind of go back to how you ended up doing this in the first place. Can you talk a little bit about what your early life and introduction to the horse world was all about? Sure. I was, you know,
1: that horse crazy girl in school you know i was as a little kid i you know had plastic horses and i took the shoelaces out of my family's shoes and made alters and bridles for them you know i just couldn't get enough you know i hid under the covers and read horse books cover to cover all night and wiped out you know the school and the public libraries of all the horse books i had the bug i had it bad i had it early i still have it and you know what a what a gift to to know what you're passionate about so early and to still be inspired and challenged by it all these years. So I feel really lucky. I also feel lucky, and this sounds really odd, but the fact that my parents weren't into it at all. And I grew up in a time where I could show up at a barn and tell people that I'd be willing to, to work in exchange for the opportunity to be around or ride. And that meant grooming horses and mucking stalls. And um, so it instilled a work ethic really early. Um, I grew up mostly in Sacramento and uh, Sacramento summers are really hot as you're learning. And uh, so, you know, I learned to work and, um, and I learned to really value the time that I got on the horses. And then I was a really, 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 really young mom. And my son was born early. And he uh, was a very, you know, I'm so lucky that as early as he was, he was nine weeks early, that Mm -hmm. he grew up nine. Yeah, Um, that he grew up so healthy, but he was very, 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 very active and impulsive. And so school was really torturous for him. Which was really baffling to me because school was really easy for me. And I had to learn a whole lot about learning really fast. And uh, the more he was in school, the more miserable he was. It was just torturous for him, which meant that it was torturous for the teachers and the kids around him too. So he was bullied. He was, um, you know, he was that kid. And um, so I learned about advocacy because he needed an advocate. And, you know, there was, because I'm this old, there wasn't internet in those days. And so you researched at the library, and um, you tried to make connections with people. And of course, I had an overwhelming sense of guilt that, you know, his learning problems came from me being so young, um, from him being so early. And it took me a lot of years to realize that his learning style was actually very, very natural for most of us, that he needed to touch things and discover things. And um, I realized that the most precious part of his education was to try and preserve his, his curiosity and that the way the schools were approaching that was anything but appreciative or nurturing of his natural curiosity. So I learned the hard way and from him um, about education and realized what wasn't working for him was what was being foisted on him. And it got me thinking, and, and I wasn't perfect, and I wasn't good at it so many times, so many things that I would redo if I could and go back and advocate for him so much harder but you don't know what you don't know. And so a lot of square peg is really that opportunity for me to be able to help kids and their parents that were in the position I was through that curve a whole lot more effectively to give them the opportunity and help them understand that they truly are their children's most important advocate and that a child that learns outside the classroom through movement and through exploration is a really beautiful and a really natural thing and that it it deserves protecting.
0: Oh, I just so resonate with that because as you know, I also have one of my children who really did not fit the standard academic system at all. Yeah. And i I learned the same lesson, which was that If you're somebody who wants to learn through all of your senses and through exploration and you have that curiosity, then that is the thing that is most disliked in the system because it... And most precious, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it is the most important thing. And and yet it is the thing that is the most disruptive in a traditional classroom. So you do kind of reach this point where it's like, well, am I going to let my child get squashed? Or am I going to celebrate the fact that my child is a marvelous human being who actually was designed perfectly. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. system doesn't fit. And we shouldn't all learn that in a vacuum
1: because it's a really painful lesson and you spend so much energy, as you know, second guessing yourself and thinking, what's wrong with me? Constantly hearing what's wrong with your child when the reality is, just like you said, child is 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 perfect. They may not be well behaved, but they're perfect and uh, and and just to to have a space where that's not just nurtured but it's celebrated is what I
0: want to bring to the world. yes, can you tell sort of the square peg birth story? Oh, sure. um
1: basic midlife crisis. <laughs> um, so in two thousand and four, well, I guess in, in, in 2002, 2003, I was running a writing program and uh, I had a student, an adult student who had made his living and career in the nonprofit world. And he was very hard to teach. He was very impulsive. He, um, he was a terrible listener. He had a ton of energy. And, uh, and he was just a really delightful person. He and his partner decided that they wanted to ride together. And they were super competitive with each other. And uh, just really lovable people. But he was not easy to teach. And he was so appreciative that I was so delighted by his exuberance. And he kept saying, and, and, and at the same time, I'd gotten a reputation for being a writing teacher who, I guess, had a lot of patience and who really enjoyed teaching kids that weren't easy to teach. It gave me a lot of satisfaction. And so that's what I was doing. And that was my, that was my program, as, as, as you know. And uh, so this, this friend, this student, just kept saying, Joelle, we need to institutionalize this. This needs to be what you do all the time. And I said, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, just go over there and put your heels down and do what I say and, <laughs> and laugh. <laughs> and uh, and he kept saying, no, this is really special. And I said, look, that's really sweet, but you know, could you just listen to what I have to say so we can do this writing lesson and then go to dinner? And he said, look, I put together a nonprofit for a living, and you need to do this, and I'm going to help. You. And uh, so he sat down, you know. With Darius and I, and we started to form this notion of Square Peg, and uh, he was a finance person, despite being um, wildly dyslexic, and uh, so he pulled together his resources, um, our pro bono legal firm. He pulled together our original budgets, our whole nonprofit application to the IRS, and then he would sit up with us all night with a bunch of other smart startup people. And we just kind of dreamed up Square Peg. And that was, that was really, that was it. It wasn't, I never set out to start a nonprofit. It wasn't anything I thought that I would do. And without Jim Nikoff's help, I don't know that it would have happened. So I'm really grateful for that. So why the name Square Peg? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so this was 2003, 2004, right? And everybody loved a nonprofit startup. And we had these late night sessions with smart marketing people. And we had this whole list and this whole chart of potential names. And um, I was actually driving down Page Mill Road, going towards um, West Wind Barn, where I think you and I met. Yeah. And the penny dropped. And there was actually this other friend that we were working with, a polo coach, and a bunch of people had decided that uh, that the 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 place for this organization to kind of manifest was in Golden Gate Park Stables, and so she and I ran around Golden Gate Park Stables that had just shut down, I guess, a couple of years before, and we ran around and we looked at at, at the facilities and we you know, stayed up all night dreaming and how wonderful and how exciting this would all be. And we'd been talking with Leslie Heiner at Work to Ride, who is somebody you should talk to and look up, who was doing a polo program for inner city kids in Fairmount Park in, in Philadelphia. And, you know, looking at her program and how that could work in San Francisco and how sexy and how cool this would all be. And then we started to realize that it wasn't actually going to work for some really important logistics and more importantly, some philosophical reasons that we wanted our families to have privacy and feel like they weren't riding in a fishbowl and people weren't just going to come as spectators and watch, you know, quote unquote, those kids ride, those special kids. And this friend said, you know, Joel, when you're forcing the fit from the start, you know, it only gets worse, it doesn't get better. And I was thinking about that as I was driving down, down Page Mill Road and that's when the penny dropped and I went, if you're forcing the fit from the start, it only gets worse. And that's when the square peg notion came to me. And as you recall, there was no cell phone service up there. I actually, you know, rushed down all the way to 280 so I could call my husband and said, I figured it out. It's square peg, you can't force the fit and that it's the forcing the fit that, you know, is the nidus of the problem. And there's a guy named Paul Collins who is an author. He wrote an autism book called Not Even Wrong. It's a really beautiful story. And he actually, you know, put in his book, he said, you know, the the pounding of a square peg into a round hole. The problem is it's not just that the pounding is such hard work. It's that in doing, in trying to force that fit, you actually destroy the peg. And that's really, really what we were,
0: you know, it really put into a nutshell,
1: everything that we were about.
0: Yeah. It really does capture and frame exactly what you do. And it makes so much sense. I didn't know what the backstory was. You know, I've only ever known your, your little tagline, you know, that square peg is where everybody fits. Yeah. And so I I really like hearing the whole backstory to that because it does make so much sense, especially in tagging on to the conversation we initially had about your son. Yeah. 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 That's so cool. So then how did you I can see how the people side of it came to be. How did the horse aspect come to be? Because you're not just going out and buying beautiful, polished, you know, perfect lesson horses. You're you're getting who have their own set of issues and history. You know, my background was in racing. And
1: in racing, you always have, you know, horses that need a home after racing. And um, I guess it was probably in the early to mid 80s where, you know, it used to be that everybody in the hunter jumper world wanted, you know, X race horses. They were such athletes. They were great horses. You could, they were affordable. And then that wasn't fashionable anymore. There were horses coming in from, from Europe that were much easier to ride, that were really impressive to look at, that were a lot more docile, and that was the Warmbloods. And so thoroughbreds, all of a sudden, you know, they, their value just plummeted. And the horses didn't change at all. They were still these sensitive, athletic, amazing horses. And it just became a crusade of mine to, you know, to 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 help these horses find homes. And, uh, you know, just like the kids that had been marginalized, it's not the horse's fault that they weren't the fashionable breed anymore. They still needed homes and they were still these amazing animals. And then as things developed, we realized that people really attached to the stories of the horses and how they came to us. And what their problem was, why they couldn't be race horses like this horse, you know, has this amazing pedigree and he should have been a great horse, but he's got a club foot, or you know, he's got an airway problem, or you know, being in the starting gate freaked him out so bad that you know he just didn't have the racing oomph because he was so stressed out by the starting gate. And people attached to that story and they saw themselves in that story. And I thought, there's something, you know, there's a there there. To let people, you know, we all know that real healing begins in ourselves when we help others. And so if you take a marginalized kid and you put them with a horse with a square peg story and they're helping the horse by caring for the horse, then you've really you've really done something. So the horses are square
0: pegs too. Yes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, that's been the beauty of what you do, and that was what I saw as you started Square Pegs, I don't even remember when you and I met, but I know that it was before 2001. Um, yeah, yeah, we go back a long, long time, and I do remember how this developed and being so impressed with the the marriage of horses that people had deemed to be no longer worth anything or no longer useful with people who were being seen as not useful, not fitting, not really worth much, and how bringing those two beings together created something really extraordinary and healing on both sides. So I would love if you could share some stories about some of those interactions that you've seen and some of of what you've seen happen when you have brought together either folks from your, your early days when you were bringing in women and kids from the Tenderloin who were in, in the shelter there, you know, through now when you're working primarily with folks on the autism spectrum, because I think that that marriage of the horse as a being and the human as a being and the interaction being the place where the magic happens and the therapy actually happens Yeah, so powerful. And and it's really what I I would love to share with people today because I don't think very many people know that this is even possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know,
1: right now there is so much, you know, critical focus on what's happening with the public demanding an end to racial injustice and i think it's important to recognize that horse therapy um, can seem very elitist and very privileged and i think it's it's important to you know acknowledge that and we've always been a program that is you know higher impact lower numbers um, because real change happens on an individual level and so i just wanted to to speak to that because you know it's in times like this when you're wondering what you can do to make the world a better place and you think you know here i am working in this elitist expensive you know sport that takes up a lot of land when people are living on top of each other and living in poverty how do you make a difference? And the, the difference is in just what you said, in helping people recognize that all lives are valuable and not that I'm saying all lives matter because we know that that's a loaded statement, but on an individual level to recognize your own personal value and the difference that you can make. And so I think one story that happens over and over and over around here is um, you have a family show up. You have this person in the family, you know, that's been marginalized um, generally by uh, autism or a neuropsychiatric disability. And a horse that feels safe and, and, and his needs have been attended to, his sensory needs, his diet needs, his exercise needs, especially these thoroughbreds, is wildly friendly and you'll see these kids run up and down the barn shed row and they're just, you know, tracked by these super curious faces that are totally focused on them. And time and time and time again, the term that comes out and it just breaks my heart every time I hear it is when this child just jumps up and down and looks at their parent and says, look, mom, they like me. (sighs) Yeah. And you know, I'm, Hmm. To be that surprised and that excited just by the notion of being openly liked and accepted for who you are is, it's just, it, it blows me away every time it happens. And it happens all the time. And those words are exactly the same every single time and when that happens over and over again you just have to recognize it and you just have to thank the horses yeah i i don't i don't know if i can follow up with any other story other than the fact that that happens all the time
0: i mean that's heartbreaking and it's wonderful at the same time exactly yeah 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 it's all the feels so when a family comes to you and they bring their child or their their family member, and they have mm-hmm. this initial interaction. What comes after that? Well, it depends, right?
1: Um, if we're speaking in terms of, of of autism, you have you know varying levels of verbal ability, and so our goal is to lean into the intrinsic interests of that person, that affected person and uh so a very common trajectory would be let's say this is a 7 or 8 year old boy and he loves trains and dinosaurs you know um we may see if we can get the child on a on a trail ride and you know and hide a few toys or tokens um that reflect toys or dinosaurs or just get our volunteers and instructors cued up to ask questions and let the child teach you about trains and dinosaurs. The idea is to have that person just really leaned into for their intrinsic interests and show them that we're listening and and earning their trust. And then from there, the idea, uh, the therapeutic module is really to Get that person either on the horse or you know riding the horse up to the swing set into a space where we're using a lot of uh, vigorous rhythmic movement because that's that's soothing for any brain, um, no matter how it's affected, well, almost any brain, I suppose, but just like you know you and I swinging on a porch swing, dancing, walking on the beach, swinging hands, that rhythmic movement is very, very, very regulating. And through that, give that person, give that family uh, a sense of peace, a sense of regulation, a sense of uh, acceptance and kindness that builds a context for creating some real joy for the family. And that's what we're after all the time. Um, We have one little girl that we do a video production where she is the host and she has the volunteers, she bosses them around, she's on horseback, and she bosses them around and makes them do silly things, and we video the whole thing, and then we make a little show about it, and, uh, and, and she loves that, right, and she becomes the director, um, she becomes, uh, it, so it's very project-based, and it's very exciting, and the stuff she comes up with, it's just, you know, because she trusts us, and because we let her quirky self just be her best self, you know she comes up with really brilliant, really complicated concepts that give her a context for feeling able, for understanding that she's very intelligent and that she's worthy of being listened to.
0: That's amazing, and it, it's so far removed from what I think for for f- the few people in the world that do understand that they're are people who do therapeutic work with horses. You know, I think what is commonly understood is that you go to a place and you get put on a horse and you do a bunch of exercises that are supposed to help you. And what you're talking about is so different because it is really driven by what that individual person needs and wants and who they are and what they're interested in. And, you know, they're it's so customized to them it's it's totally different than just going and doing a program.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just my short attention span right? <laughs> uh, that uh, it, it's so much fun this way. And, you know, we've been, you know, through our association with the horse boy method that was originally based out of Elgin, Texas, you know, a lot of these things we were doing kind of instinctively. But the work that they did there really helped us understand the how and the why of it. And then to be able to cultivate this real sense of joy that goes around this when we train the volunteers, when we train
0: new staff, Uh, it's just so much fun. I love that. Can you talk a little bit more about the horse boy method and where that came from and, and what it's about? Sure, sure. The Horse
1: Boy Story is the story of an autism family. Uh, Rowan Isaacson um, is 18 years old now, and uh, he was diagnosed uh, at four or five, I think, and he had a regressive form of autism where he seemed to be developing typically and then started regressing emotionally and verbally. I don't want to ruin the whole story. There's a book, there's a documentary film that, you know, won awards at Sundance about this family's journey. And, uh, you know, the, the guilt that the father experienced thinking that he had, you know, just foisted some genetic issues upon his son, but, uh, uh, there's an element of the horse voice story that uh, that's really hard to teach in a workshop. And it's, and it's the mystical sense. And that mystical sense came from the fact that this family talked to traditional healers about their son's um, condition. And the healers came back time and time again um, saying ostensibly, there's actually nothing wrong with your son in, in, in a tribal culture your son would be singled out to be trained as a healer, because he definitely has a connection to the spirit world, and you need to embrace that. And I don't want to be insensitive to autism families um, who, you know, their family member has, uh, you know, has 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 gut issues and has behavior issues that are dangerous, that are very, very, very painful. I'm not being a Pollyanna and saying, you know, autism just needs to be seen through another lens. I realized that there is tremendous suffering for a lot of families. But in this particular case, the only thing that changed when this family made this epic journey, you know, via horseback to, um, to the reindeer people in Mongolia was that you know, just the same thing that I learned with my son and the same thing I think that, that you learned too, that this is a perfect being. And um, my job is to to love him, to cultivate his curiosity, to do everything I can to relieve his suffering and to connect him to the most beautiful parts of himself. And that's really what the what the story is about. And then what the method evolved after through that experience is that you have to create a physical and a human environment that is, that is, that's delightful for this person. And delightful sounds like a really touchy-feely term, but it's a specific term. How do you take away as many sensory triggers as possible? And how do you move into sensory issues head on? In autism, we see, well, actually, in the whole general population, we see people who are sensory seekers, and we see people who are sensory avoiders. And all of us can identify on a very basic level with with both of those things. Um, You know, we talked about polo. I like speed. It's thrilling for me. Some people, it's terrifying in understanding that those are two very real feelings. Um, We all have smells that we think are glorious that other people think are disgusting. And both of those, those are true. So, being sensitive to sensory issues and trying to take away as many sensory triggers as possible, and so that may mean that with one family, you know, the child doesn't want to be in the arena at all. Um, he needs to be in the forest. He needs to be going up the hill. He needs to be headed towards the pond. Um, and with another family. That idea of going up and down hills and being around trees is terrifying. So, staying in the arena is more important. Some people really like trotting and cantering. Some people, that's terrifying. And, you know, a walk is as good as we can do. Some people, just getting on the horse and laying on the horse body to body is a really beautiful sensory experience. So, having a delightful environment, moving into and respecting sensory issues and understanding that sensory issues can change day to day. How we feel on a windy day or a cold day uh, can be very different than how we feel on a bright, sunshiny day. And then again, using those intrinsic interests to bring out the best in people and to illustrate that we are uh, worthy of communicating with. And then our final goal. Our ultimate goal is self advocacy. How do you help this person be able to speak for what they need in their life? And that's really Horseboy method in a in a in a nutshell. And within that, and we call it a method, um, and I would argue that it's not a method at all. It's a framework. You know, it's a frame to put around. And you know, just like any beautiful piece of art, it's what's inside that frame that's unique, as opposed to like you said, following a program, following a method that might become very sterile, very dry, very top down. This is much more, you know, a frame on a, around a beautiful painting.
0: I can see how for the human being involved in this, that can feel so good. And I'm curious about how the horses respond to this because of course, horses are so sensitive and, As prey animals, their senses are acute. And sure, you've had horses that have had their own sensory issues as well. So, when the human involved has these sensitivities and these issues, how does the horse play into that? Like, what role does the horse play? And how do you navigate through the horse's own sensitivity? Like, is that a Is that a plus or can it be detrimental? And how how do you deal with that? That's a great question.
1: Not all horses are going to be great program horses. And uh, again, you know, my short attention span, it helps that these horses really need to be not just trained, but interactive with so that you understand What those sensory things are. I uh, have this one horse who is brilliant and he's hot and he's a thoroughbred and he's, you know, he's kind of the trainer's horse kind of horse, which means, you know, which is just code for pain in the neck. And uh, I had this one family um, with this little boy and uh, he was tough, really tough. And he didn't necessarily. He didn't seem that interested in riding, but he loved being at the barn. And there was a time where Square Peg was about the only place this mother could bring this child because he was so impulsive. There was a time where he would just go into the stalls and pick up manure balls and put them in the waterers. And uh, we just went, okay, this is what he's going to do. We're just going to clean out nine waterers (laughs) when he leaves he showed up about an hour and a half early one day just as I was getting on this particular horse who you're not supposed to have favorites, but he's my favorite and just needed a ride, you know, so that I could be ready for the rest of the day. It's regulating for me. I really wanted to get this horse out. I really had a training agenda. And he shows up and he walks directly towards me and he vocalizes, which he didn't always do. And he says, I want to ride that horse. And you're like, holy smokes, you know, this horse isn't ready to be a program horse. You know, I've got him all queued up and ready for, you know, a really intense uh, classical dressage ride. I don't have any helmets in the arena. I'm not ready. And I took a deep breath and I stepped off the horse and I took my helmet off and I put it on this child. And I looked at the horse like, you know, please don't kill anyone. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) you know, and I really didn't want to do it. And I'm not advocating for people to put you know people with disabilities on a hot horse, but this horse's body completely changed the moment this child sat on him, and he took. And this isn't a mystical thing; it's a you know it's a herd thing. This very hot, very dominant horse immediately moved in a herd position, like a hot, dominant horse would, into a protective mode. You know, um, rather than being combative with me. And wondering if he's in charge, if I'm in charge, he immediately knew that this child needed protecting. And we have been using regularly in the program ever since. This was years ago. And he's one of our best horses ever. Don't know that I would have made that change at that point had I not been in that place. But what I saw that horse do taught me a lot about horses in that moment. A lot about that particular horse, whom I knew was very intelligent but I hadn't given him credit for that level of intelligence. And I hadn't given him credit for that level of connection with me that we were having the silent conversation of, I need you to be, you know, a different horse than we were both kind of queued up for being. That being said, there are horses that uh, are really good program horses that will start to tell you that they need a break or maybe they need another job. So, you know, you're constantly spending time with your horses. Um, You know, in Horse Boy, we say that you have to live like a horse tribe. Like, you need to live with your horses. You need to know who they are today. You need to be looking at their eating habits. You need to be looking how they interact in the herd. Um, Because herd dynamics with horses are, they're, they're, they're dynamic. They're not static. And a horse that's very dominant right now may change if he has a health change. A horse that is is a little submissive right now, may become more dominant as they get older or as their health changes. So it's just fascinating. And luckily we have we have two farms. We have 12 horses at each farm. Sometimes we move the horses between farms because it's a different environment and how they react in one environment and one feed program and one turnout situation may be different than how they react. So you're gosh, this is a really long answer you just need to know your horses and you need to be humble enough to know that the horses may tell you that you were wrong all along. Um, And of course your first goal is safety. So knowing your horses well enough, making sure that their exercise needs are attended to, that their feed needs are attended to so that they're healthy enough to do the job. And there are times where, you know, you realize that, wow, this horse that I had queued up for the session is absolutely not going to work. And so you may have to explain to a family in a way that they can understand that we may have to use another horse, even though they're really connected. So let's say, you know, Phil, our fantastic pony uh, that a family really loves, is feeling really cranky or really anxious that day. Um, We may have to tell them that Phil's not feeling really well and that Phil really needs a rest or something and we go and get another horse, or that another horse is feeling really lonely, and he was hoping he could join the session. So it's a, it's a really tricky balance that you're always finding, um, but it's again, it's a great challenge because it, it, it keeps you constantly thinking and evaluating.
0: Yeah, it sounds to me as though every element of the work that you do is based on awareness you know, and tuning in to what's actually happening right in the moment with that particular being and not being attached to well, I had a plan or this is how it's supposed to be. I don't think you probably ever utter the word "should I can't <laughs> you know and and it's also like the underlying theme is allowing it's like we're we are allowing each being in this. Environment in this process, in this relationship, to be who they are right now, and not try to force them to be some other way. And yeah, that's yeah. like the ultimate way of respecting another being.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's you know the the hardest part, Cynthia, is is throwing that agenda out the window um, because both children. And a horse can smell an agenda, you know, a mile away and they will humble you over and over again. And also being kind to yourself when you catch yourself, when you realize that you have an agenda. And that's not to say that, you know, we haven't had families that, you know, drive 40 minutes to get to the ranch and then are very, very, very disappointed if their family member is having a really bad day and they've rejected the horse completely. That's really hard on families you know and 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 so we're constantly getting more skilled at either you know finding out what the what the source of the fear is or or the rejection from the family member or just realizing that that parent may just need a break and may need a walk or um maybe the family member you know maybe the parent needs to get on the horse which we've done which has been a lot of fun so, yeah. So, uh, if you have an agenda, if you have a plan between horses and special needs families, <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna get called out on that. So, um, that's so
0: powerful though, because one of the the greatest sources of stress and pain, I- at least in my life. And I think in most people's lives is trying to control things that you really don't have any control or influence over and, and thinking that you can. Right. Right. And there's no better teacher for that than a horse, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, gosh, Joelle, this has been so much fun. I, I think I could ask you questions and pick your brain and, and get you to tell stories all day long, but I think I didn't schedule you for the whole day. So <laughs> I I have some more questions for you, um, some that I usually ask at the beginning, but we sort of skipped over because we got right into it. You know, with your background, being a very, very young single mother of, of a child who Probably at the time was labeled "quote difficult," you know, Mm -hmm. and and having the background in the racing industry that you did, I'm sure there were some experiences you had in that world that were not too pleasant, and just seeing your whole path through to the point where you sort of reluctantly (laughs) formed (laughs) nonprofit, and then the work that you've been doing since then. I mean, it's such a powerful story of. Allowing things to unfold and learning the lessons that were needed in the moment, because you always have approached things, I think, with the willingness to say, well, I don't know in this situation. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. And I'm going to learn. I'm going to, I'm going to try things. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to reach out to people who might be able to help. And so that willingness to to say, well, I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing to learn seems to also be a theme. And that has led you very far outside of the mainstream in a lot of different things. So I, I would love to hear for you, if, as you look back on the path that you've taken, what advice would you give To young women today, that you wish you'd had when you were in your, say, your early 20s? Ooh, I have been so
1: lucky in having some beautiful mentors and teachers show up in my life. And I would say my best advice is to, to be open to and to be on the lookout for those mentors and teachers. And I think that's where luck comes from and then realize that those mentors and teachers don't always come in the shape and the size that you think they're supposed to. You know, we think that right education and mentorship comes in this, you know, elderly sage sits you down at at, at their feet and 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 tells you what to do. And sometimes, you know, the best mentor is one that forgives you for screwing up royally and waits until you come back with some humility and said well you you know you suggested that i do it this way and i did it the opposite and um now i'm ready to listen <laughs> you know you really do fail your way to success and learning to be kind to yourself and in knowing that you'll screw up is what learning is about and um and it's and it's a really hard one to learn i think as women, we we don't know how to be kind to ourselves, particularly for screw ups, and we'll we'll go over them and over them and over them, and we spend a lot of energy in that, and that's energy that can be spent much better in other
0: ways. Ooh, yeah, you're right <laughs> on on all of those things. I'm, I'm as you were talking, I was thinking back to mentors in my life and some of the unexpected teachers who have shown up. Who weren't even human, which I'm sure you've had. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, and and also, I love that. You know, you really do fail your way to success, because I think that oftentimes I know I I have done this too. I've just been so concerned about failure or so aggravated with myself for having failed that I've ended up not moving forward and of realizing that there was a takeaway and a lesson from that and that it wasn't necessarily a setback. It was just a, a stepping stone, which is the thing that we taught our kids from a young age is like, if you're not failing, you're actually probably not going to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. And and I guess, so I'm also curious that, you know, you're saying that we're often not very kind and gentle with ourselves. And, I, and I'm thinking, you know, in my work doing the self-defense work, I'm often... You know, I hear stories and I talk with women about experiences that they've had and they're so people yeah. and I have such empathy for what people have actually lived through and are living through. And sometimes it's hard because it's hard to let go of that and back myself out of it. And I imagine that you and the work that you do too, because it does touch your heart so deeply and because you you are so open and so connected, I imagine that it is hard at the end of the day or the end of the week to not just be carrying all of that along with you and to just kind of be awash in in the impact of all of that. So what do you actually do for self-care?
1: <laughs> it sounds really trite, but I have to really make an effort and I'm not always successful to to ride the horses, you know, because I have to recognize that this this is the passion that started all of this and that I have to kindle it. And so often I have so many excuses not to, or I want, you know, a volunteer that's worked really hard to make sure that, you know, she gets a ride in. And I do get a lot of satisfaction out of, you know, uh, of making those horsey dreams that I had as a kid, you know, happen for these really hardworking teenage volunteers, but getting out horseback, and, and just being grateful for the nature around here. A few years ago, I decided that every year I had to do two or three things that terrified me. And I needed to do that because it was really important for me to connect how someone might feel on a horse because, you know, that's not, that's not a feeling that I know. I don't feel, you know, it's rare that I feel terrified on a horse. And to be able to respect how that person might feel, I needed to do something that terrified me. It turns out rock climbing terrifies me. Public speaking terrified me. And uh, strangely enough, the thing that I've been doing and studying that, um, that has really connected me on a human level is I've been studying Spanish, which I think everyone in California should do. The idea of speaking Spanish to a native Spanish speaker terrifies me, and it's so good for me to have to do that because it helps me understand people who may not be highly verbal, understand language processing that may be slower, um, that may create panic in them, and that may create them to just completely shut down and not be able to hear anything I say. I don't think that answers your question, actually, about self-care. Sorry. (laughs) But that level of connection, that level of kind of challenging my brain, I started learning piano too, because it helped me learn how to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes and realize that I'm not very good to myself when I make mistakes, but when you learn piano, you're going to make mistakes over and over again, and that started to kind of ease that fear of of making a mistake and screwing up. So just putting myself through some challenges to make me more accepting of my own shortcomings, my own things that don't come easy to me, uh, has been has been a really fun challenge.
0: Well, yeah, those are actually both great investments in yourself. You know, I, I mean you're saying that you often don't get out to ride, which is the thing that started all of this off. And I'm sitting here thinking, holy cow, I have not gotten Annalisa Lisa out for a Mosey in about nine months. Yeah. Yeah, it happens. I do. I live up in the mountains on a property where I can keep my horse right there. It was so that I could go ride my horse every day without having to drive an hour each direction. Yeah. Um, and yet in my drive to build my business and to, to do these things, that has been the thing that I have sacrificed and damn it, <laughs> I should not do that. Um, so it's very easy actually to to sacrifice that that one thing that really is the place that puts you back in your happy place and allows you to experience that joy where you're not working and you're not doing you're just in the pleasure of something that has been such a huge part of life for such a long time and giving yourself permission to
1: do this thing that gives you pleasure and recognizing that i think as women we very often think oh well i haven't quite earned that because i haven't you know attained all the goals yeah
0: or i'll do that later like this other stuff needs to get yep. so i'll do that later and then oh by then you know i'm too tired but i also like you know the second half of that that answer was really all about an investment in yourself different investments that you've been making in your own growth your own development your own learning and that's one of the things that makes you so wonderful is that willingness to always be challenging yourself and being willing to learn things and get outside your comfort zone. And that's, that's great. And I can see how doing those things have, has also given another connection and another way for you to be in alignment with many of the people that you work with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just a
0: lifelong journey of learning, right? It is. It is. Well, I have um, one more question for you and then we'll wrap it up. So, how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage?
1: How do I think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? You start with intention. What do they say that luck favors the prepared mind? It's okay to Feel like you're not powerful and not courageous. I think starting with with an intention, and whether your practice is to journal about that, or meditate on it, or do a vision board, or doodle, um, but that quiet reflective time is really critical. And then thinking about people that you. Want to emulate, and I'm a reader, you know. So for me, that's pretty easy to think about um, women that I want to emulate, people that I admire for their courage, you know, and study them, and realize that everybody's human. Because sometimes you can idolize people too much, and then very disappointed to find out that they're just humans. But yeah, I think it's that that actual intention of uh, I want to. See myself as as courageous and make that intention,
0: and then make those baby steps towards it. Hmm. I love that. Are, do you feel like you can share some of the people that think about in terms of role models for yourself? Mm. You know, I think from a
1: nonprofit standpoint um and really a mission and being driven, sounds really trite, but um Mother Teresa, for me, um was so powerful in thinking about someone who was all about their mission, all about being completely 100% all in. And, you know, she was fascinating because people would come up to her all the time and say, you know, I'm an actress and here you are feeding, you know, the poor starving babies in Calcutta. What can I do? And she would say, you're an actress. You need to go home. You need to do what you do and you need to bring joy to people and you know so taking your own talents and your own calling and and doing it with conviction um i just I, you know she just she had so many moments like that that wasn't you know she wasn't telling everybody that they needed to you know join a convent and um and and go to india it was you know what is it that you do that brings joy to the world do that And it doesn't mean that you have to do it for a living. It means that you can do it, you know, as your hobby and in your spare time thing, but do it with intention to bring joy or, you know, comfort to others. It was so cool. When we first started this, um, we were mentored by Jerry and Lilo Leeds, who made amazing steps towards uh, education equality in inner city schools. You know, I, and and they were in their eighties um, when I first met them, and they were both in failing health. They they both passed now, and uh, and I was sitting at a dinner table, and I'm telling these wildly successful people who have done this, you know, amazing mission driven work together as a couple for all these years, and uh, and I thought that that Jerry Leeds was like falling asleep, and he he kind of lifted his head up and and. Said, he said, Joel, what you're doing is so important. I don't want you to start a program. I need you to start a movement. And that was just one of those seminal moments where you just rock back on your heels. Just what a powerful statement, you know, that that you really do need to be the change that you want to see in the world, even if it's just in your your little corner of, of of doing what gives you energy. And as I get older, you know, you have less time and you have less energy. So I've really thought a lot about the intention part because otherwise you can spend so much energy ruminating about the things you should have said, the things you were supposed to do, the things that, you know, you did wrong. And uh, and it's not until I just take a deep breath and think about the intention that I can continually move forward. And that's a big one.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. I, and he's right about the movement. And I'm really curious, like when, when I was able to come up to Square Peg and was around you in person, you only had one location and you mentioned that you have two. So what's going on with that? How is the movement growing and like, what's coming up next for you? The last few years, I have uh, had a really cool, again, I was a really
1: young mom, right? And one of my dreams was always to travel. And I figured that that just wasn't available in my life, and so the last few years, the horse boy movement has gotten you know quite big, and I was able to do some really fantastic travel and teaching on behalf of the horse boy movement, and also on behalf of the thoroughbred aftercare movement, where the racing industry and all corners of the racing industry, from the sales companies to the breeding farms. To the veterinarians, to the owners, to the jockeys, um, are all contributing to funds to, you know, fund aftercare for for ex race horses. And suddenly, you know, I'm traveling and I'm speaking and and I'm teaching all over the world um, before the COVID nineteen shutdowns. And what an adventure that's been! I uh, I did some programs with the Phoenixia Foundation in the Philippines. That was just. Mind-blowing! I've done some work in Thailand for the Horseboy Foundation. I've been um, traveling and speaking with the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance. We went to Saratoga, New York. That was amazing. I went to Louisville. So that's been, you know, the realization of a dream that uh, that I'd kind of written off is not going to happen. I did projects in Ireland. Uh, I've worked with our teachers and mentors in Portugal. Just fantastic! Like dream come true sort of stuff. So we don't know what travel is going to look like, you know, with, uh, with a global pandemic on. But, uh, but I'm hoping in the next year or so that those opportunities will open back up. But in the meantime, just spending that time really developing staff and developing community relations in, uh, with Square Peg, um, with our two farms, and then taking a look at the expansion project to our, our other farm in Sonoma. And does it make sense to build more satellite organizations, or does it make more sense to just be able to travel and mentor some other organizations that are starting up to continue the work? And the answer is probably both. And we'll see. We don't know what the future will bring. This has been a pretty wild year for throwing curveballs at us. And, uh, and we're still kind of reeling from that and figuring out what the new normal looks like, just like everybody. But luckily, you know, we're a small enough organization that we're we're trying to be nimble enough to
0: respond to what our community needs from us. So I don't know. I don't know. Well, I'm definitely going to stay tuned because it sounds like there are an awful lot of possibilities and I'm sure that what comes next is going to be amazing as it emerges. So I'm definitely going to stay tuned. And I know that people are going to want to stay in touch with you and, and learn more about Square Peg and about the, the work that you're doing. So can you share how people can connect with you? Absolutely.
1: Squarepegfoundation.org is our website. Our Facebook account was somehow hacked. And so we're working on getting control of that again, but you can find us on Facebook at Squarepeg Foundation on Twitter and Instagram at Squarepeg Ranch. Our website is not a website of sorts; that is a um, kind of a brochure-type website. It's really a storytelling website, so it's more like a blog where you can page through and and um, just kind of follow thoughts and stories. If you're interested in more stories, that's really the place to go. Our Instagram account is, of course, you know, storytelling and in picture form, so whatever suits your fancy. And I've been publishing a novel in Scenes, which I thought was really clever when I started doing it about a year and a half ago. And it turns out that, oh goodness, I've dropped her name. The woman who wrote the Harry Potter novels? Oh, J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling. Apparently her latest novel she is releasing as an online serial. So look at me ahead of that curve. Um, (laughs) But- uh, it's uh it's a story about women and horses. Go figure called A Damn Fine Hand, and you can find that at adamfinehand.com.
0: Excellent. And so if people want to connect with you about your programs or about working with you, can they find a place to do that on the website? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's awesome. I'm sure there are going to be people who want to follow up and and connect with you and follow the continuing story of the square peg foundation and team quirky which you actually didn't mention but I'll give you a chance right here to explain what team quirky is team quirky was a hashtag that we came across in the
1: autism community you know there's 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 lots of opinions and some people are offended by the notion of quirky because they think that it, it downplays the, the level of disability that a person with autism has. But we, we love the idea of team quirky because it means that we can all be our unique selves. That's what it means to us. So I apologize to any autism families that that may feel a little uncomfortable for. But team quirky uh, to us is our hashtag that that's really about just joyfulness and, and kind of celebrating our own uniqueness. Um, And uh, it worked for us.
0: I loved it when I saw it. And that's exactly what it evoked in me was individuality, you know, uniqueness and, and fun. And together as a team, right? Exactly. (laughs) Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been very informative. And I'm glad that I finally got a chance to ask you a bunch of questions that I've always wanted to ask you. And I'm sure that there are going to be a lot of people who will be really inspired by hearing about your approach and the work that you do and the insights that you shared about working with with people and with horses and, and how the two play together. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. What a blast. Um, sorry that I waxed on. I do that. <laughs> well, you see this is why I don't actually put a time limit on our recording so that we can actually <laughs> have the conversation we want to have and not feel like we have to chop things off and get to the end on a particular time. So, I'm glad that you waxed on because there's some great gems and nuggets in what you shared. Thank you. Thank you. So much fun, Cynthia. I anyway, I'm honored. Well, likewise. This has been the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass.
1: You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.